Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, after a massive protest from Calgary business owners, is City Council any closer to fixing its property tax problem? The federal government proposing a ban on single-use plastics, but how much of a difference would that really make? Also, a new documentary, A Stranded Nation, examines the plight of Canada's oil and gas industry. A closer look at the potential costs of universal pharmacare. Plus, dog behavior expert Dr. Stanley Corrin on how dogs and humans read and feed off of each other's emotions. Well, as we've been hearing on the news, it appears as though there, there is an agreement at City Hall to, at least for now, try to alleviate the burden that's being heaped on Calgary businesses as a result of this tax shift and the declining values in the downtown core. So council did end up voting unanimously this afternoon in favor of this plan meant to bring some relief. So there will be $71 million in rebates coming out of the reserve fund. Uh, they're going to try to find $60 million in cuts from the city budget. But it is, for now, a short-term measure that there are still some bigger challenges. I think that city council is going to need to deal with. I don't know the businesses are looking for more rebates. I, I think there's, there's a hope or an expectation that we're going to see some, some fundamental change here. And why did it have to take this long? We're not to the point where these tax notices have already gone out. I think there's still confusion as to what it's going to mean going forward. Anyway, uh, joining us to talk more about what went on, uh, what went on at City Hall today is someone who was there taking it all in, of course, starting with a big rally this morning. And we spoke with her last week, Kelly Duty, founder and owner of Social School based in Inglewood. Kelly, thanks for joining us again here. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me. So it's been quite a day, I can imagine. Your, your thoughts on just what you've seen and heard and whether we've got anything uh, meaningful and workable coming out of this. Yeah, it was quite a day. Um, you know, it's... Uh I think a lot of us are still waiting for some clarification on on uh, exactly what was passed. I literally just texted my counselor to say, can you let us know, does this mean a hold on 2018 levels, uh, taxation levels and a 10% decrease, or is it just a 10% decrease? Um, beyond that, it's, mm-hmm. you know, how does it get handed down from, from landlord to tenant and when, and, and uh, you know, what happens on July 1st when tax bills are due? So I think there's a lot of questions that still remain, and uh, I would categorically say there's a lot of long-term questions that are a lot louder. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, the fact that that this is happening now, I I suspect maybe if City Council had had come up with this a few months ago, there would at least be a little more clarification. But uh, yeah, it's got to be confusing when the tax notices have gone out. Now we've got this uncertainty as to what it's going to mean for 2019. I mean, that's not the kind of situation that businesses should ever be put in, is it? Absolutely. No, it's, uh, it's, I mean, it's been eye-opening the last week, but let alone, you know, a few months as more and more business owners have come forward, just having to be screaming to be heard. I think this morning's rally showed that, that people just, they just wanted to finally have a voice and, and have someone listen to them. From what we've heard from everyone from the BIAs to the chamber, council just has not been listening. And, and I, I would add to that, that I think there's a lot of um, out of touchness with reality in terms of what had to change with city spending and with, um, well, beyond that, the tax shift and all the rest of it so that commercial and residential are sharing the load um, and that people are listening finally because we've had to get really loud about the situation. Well, and yeah, and it's also unfortunate that it had to take that. I mean, a lot of people, including some of council, acknowledge that this is or needs to be a wake-up call. Do you, do you think it really was? 
I hope so, Rob. I um, I guess there's nothing like staring at the faces of the people paying your bills saying we're not doing this anymore because we're literally going broke doing so. And uh, look at these numbers for them to finally recognize how ridiculous they are. Like when you hear the stories of what people's tax bills are, we heard from a golf course owner this morning that, um, you know, his tax bill in a six-month operation, a golf course. No one's getting rich running a golf course today, I'm sorry, especially a public one in the Northeast. Mm-hmm. Um they are, you know, just basically saying we've got a 200% increase here. How do you sustain that? And that's in one year. And I can say the same at three, 350% at my business. So even if we pair back to 2018 levels, that doesn't help a lot of people that have seen their buildings assessed at absolutely ridiculous values uh, for the last three, four, five years. And uh, they're going to be bumped right back to that assessment as soon as the clock rolls into 2020. And we're going to be right back where we started unless we see assessment reform and much much reduced spending at a city level. As you watch the debate today and, and some of the bickering today, I mean, what did you make of, you know, just the, the way council seems to be functioning or the, the sorts of issues they seem to get hung up on? I don't, I, I don't, I'm going to try not to be too frank here, but um, it was really eye-opening, Rob. Like we're sitting here listening to them, um, you know, after basically bleeding, we're, our hearts and, and, you know, everything is on the line here. I've never been so exposed in my life, literally. I feel like the, the only thing I need to do next is post my tax return. Um, and having to get that exposed with our numbers and our situations in order for them to listen. And then we sit and listen to them debate their pensions and their compensations and their office expense accounts. Like it was, uh, it was not the right time for that. And I think that was the frustration that there was one counselor bringing that up over and over. And that could have probably waited. Um, if nothing else, don't put that in front of us when we don't have guaranteed paychecks, let alone pensions, you know, benefits, uh, expense accounts, and here we are paying theirs. Right. Yeah, the optics are not good. I, I mean, it's certainly, I think it was entirely possible that things could have descended into further bickering and, and dissension today, and maybe this wouldn't even been voted on or passed. I, I guess the fact that it did, hopefully, is a step that things are moving in the right direction. Are, are you trying to find some, some optimism here, Kelly? Absolutely. Yes. And, um, and I'm going to be the first to admit, I am not privy or no, I should say I'm not aware of the normal proceedings in council. And from what I understand, a 15 to zero vote is not common. So that's really encouraging. Um, and uh, I, I guess just I feel like all Calgarians, you know, we know we're entrepreneurial. We know that um, that high taxes or, or taxes period lead to social good, social programs. I don't think anyone that I've spoken with doesn't want snow removal and garbage removal or to maybe cut back on a few things so that so long as we're part of the discussion. I have been told that you will not have, you know, planters along your boulevard anymore. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't, I, as I said to the mayor, and I probably shouldn't have, I don't give two craps about planters if there's no businesses along our main street. Um, so, you know, people just, once they're more aware, and I think we all have gotten a lot more schooled in, in this uh, issue than we wanted to over the last few weeks and months since the tax bills went out. But I do believe that people are willing to pay their fair share, just not see it go to waste. Yeah, indeed. All right. Well, we'll all be watching this very closely as it proceeds in the days and weeks ahead. Kelly, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Rob. Take care. That is Kelly Duty, uh, founder and owner of Social School based in Inglewood. Their website, socialschool.io. I'm very happy to announce that as early as 2021, Canada will ban harmful single-use plastics from coast to coast to coast. 
Uh, so that announcement today from the uh, Prime Minister that we're going to ban single-use plastics, things like drinking straws, as early as 2021, which you might notice sounds like a bit of a moving target. So there's no firm date at this point for when this is supposed to happen or exactly what's going to fall under this. Uh, the press release says that there will be a ban on harmful single-use plastics as early as 2021, where supported by scientific evidence and warranted. And other steps will be taken to reduce pollution from plastic products and packaging. So it's really unclear how all of this is going to work. Conservative leader Andrew Scheer today says that this feels more like an attempted distraction from other things. In the dying days of this uh, government with a scandal-plagued government with a prime minister desperate to change the channel, uh, we see uh, another uh, uh, gesture without a a plan, without uh, any kind of specifics on on how this would be implemented or any kind of uh, study on the impact on prices for consumers, on jobs, on how this would affect small businesses. So this is clearly just a a government that's clutching at straws trying to change the channel from its scandals. Look, do, do we use more plastic than we need to? Probably. Do we throw out more plastic than we need to? Probably. Do we need to do a better job when it comes to recycling? Sure. In fact, there are a lot of problems right now, in fact, even when we have the intention to recycle plastic. That's easier said than done these days. But are we a major contributor to the global problem uh, of plastic garbage? You know, we, we see these awful images or hear these stories of this great plastic garbage island or a, a whale died somewhere and had all kinds of plastic in, inside it. Are we contributing to that problem? Is this going to make any kind of a meaningful difference? Well, joining us for some thoughts is someone who took a really in-depth look in this uh, at this issue in a piece he wrote about a year ago. You can still find it at nationalpost.com. How banning straws isn't going to save the ocean. Joining us on the line is Tristan Hopper with the National Post, nationalpost.com. Tristan, thanks for joining us here today. Oh, no problem. Anytime to talk about the uh, uh, folly of uh, these types of initiatives. And I can explain why. I'm not just some reactionary here. Yeah, well, and, and and we can get into it here, but it is interesting because I think on the surface it seems logical that plastic is used to make these things. Maybe we don't need to use them as, as much as we do. Uh, sure, okay, fair enough. But but what, what gets overlooked in this conversation? Yeah, so this, is, uh, this has become super trendy uh, in the last three years because uh, there's increased awareness of the great Pacific garbage pack, uh, patch, all the ocean plastic, which is just getting worse and worse and worse. So we've had that great Pacific garbage patch for 20 years, but now it's, you know, it gets deeper and deeper. So people are seeing islands in the Pacific just completely overrun with plastic garbage. They're seeing whales choking to death on plastic. So naturally they're thinking, if we just get rid of our single-use plastics, this will get rid of it. But I want everybody in the audience to think about the last time you used a plastic straw. When you were done with it, and the Canadian audience, when you were done with it, did you throw it in a river or did you throw it in a harbor? No, you probably threw it in a garbage can, and then a truck picked up that garbage can and then put it in a landfill and put clay over the top, and it will be there for the next 10,000 years. So it's not really Canadians that are contributing to this problem. And if you look at the science, and, you know, Trudeau likes to say he's, you know, Mr. Science, Mr. Evidence-Based, most of the ocean plastic, like the vast majority of it, is coming from Africa and South Asia, up to 95%, according to some studies, and I think it was another study saying that uh, 60%, I think uh, it was four countries that could, were responsible for 60% of it. 
uh, with some of the top ones being Bangladesh and Indonesia, because those are countries that don't have proper waste management. Um, so they've seen um, wealthier, wealthier uh, populations. Uh, so with wealth comes more single-use plastic. But instead of putting it in a proper landfill, there are literally dumps all across South Asia, which is just a beach. You dump your garbage on the beach, the tide comes in, washes it out to sea. So if you really want to deal with the problem of ocean plastic, you work on initiatives to build dumps in those countries. And it's really easy. We know how to build dumps. It's pretty cheap. You say, here's a bulldozer, here's some clay, here's a couple of experts. Boom! That whole town is suddenly not contributing tons and tons of plastic into the ocean. So if you were really actually trying to find a solution to this, you would fund initiatives overseas. Banning plastic in Canada, a place that is already among the world leaders in managing plastic waste, uh, it's going to be a tremendously expensive initiative to force businesses to switch over. It's going to screw over a bunch of disabled people, and I don't think it's going to make the oceans any cleaner. And that money would be way better spent on initiatives that actually work, and oceanographers are screaming for more funding to have it work. Yeah. Well, and that's an important point. You could go to a Canadian landfill then, and you could find straws that were used and thrown out by Canadians. Uh, if you went to one of these these piles of garbage floating in the ocean, you would probably be very hard-pressed to find a straw that was discarded by a Canadian. Uh, yes. Uh, so, yeah, if everybody was like uh, Canada or the United States, um, it would be a much smaller problem uh, in the ocean. So I've heard this, this issue compared to climate change, like, well, Canada's only 2% of climate change, so we should have the rest of the world do it. But this is a completely different issue, because in terms of emissions, uh, we are actually per capita almost higher than almost anyone on Earth. But when it comes to ocean plastic, the mass is completely reversed. Our ocean plastic contribution is almost nothing. And that's pretty good for a country that has a crap load of coastline all around. Um, so, and, and another thing that was never mentioned in uh, the problem with ocean plastic, up to 45% of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch is ghost gear. This is plastic fishing gear that has lost its sea. So you have gear that is designed to catch and kill marine wildlife. It gets loose. You've got a net floating around for 40 years until it degrades, killing untold thousands of dolphins and fish and whatever. Um, that's the major problem, and people who are serious about this issue, instead of just trying to look good without actually doing anything, are looking primarily at ghost gear. And there are easy ways to fix ghost gear. You have buyback programs, you've got ghost, you've got registries for fishing gear. There, for a wealthy country like Canada, this is an issue in which it would be extraordinarily easy to spend relatively little money and have a major impact. But instead of that, we're just going to screw over a bunch of restaurants again for probably no reason. I, I, I could be convinced that uh, no wildlife is actually going to be saved by this uh, Canadian initiative. Well, it's interesting. And you, you touched on it in the piece you wrote where there was a, a viral video going around showing a sea turtle. And the sea turtle had a, a plastic straw wedged into its nose. It seemed very painful. This was in Costa Rica, apparently. And... And yeah, it looks awful. It, it seems terrible that some straw I used to drink a Slurpee is now harming some, some poor turtle in Costa Rica. But how much are, are straws a part of the problem? Straws are a very small part of the problem. That's why it's so weird that straws became the number one issue of dealing with the ocean. Uh, because, uh, again, and, and there are researchers looking at this. Please read their stuff. They are trying to tell us what to actually do to save the oceans, and we're not listening to them because we saw this adorable turtle with a straw up its nose. So we're ignoring all this data. So when you actually look at the tonnages of garbage 
uh, straws are actually quite small. And when it comes to, if you're going to fill the ocean with a plastic garbage, you would actually want to do it with straws. And again, I'm not saying we should you know, ramp up. We are, we are using too much plastic. It's not a bad thing to cut down on our plastic usage. But in terms of what is most dangerous to animals, straws are generally uh, pretty safe because you can't get entangled in it. It's entanglements that are killing most of the wildlife. So, yeah, uh, the sea turtle got a straw up its nose, and it's a really heart-rending video, but you're not seeing the video of the thousands of sea turtles who got caught in ghost gear, who got caught in uh, any number of plastics that, again, could be easily taken out of the ocean and the waste stream if we were funding dump development in the third world. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also touch on the question of unintended consequences, that if we ban straws uh, or we ban certain pieces of, of cutlery, whatever it is we're banning, then, then something else is going to have to replace it or companies are going to have to figure out a different strategy. We don't exactly know what those replacement products are going to be or whether they might have issues that, that come along with, with those solutions. That's right. So I think you'll hear defenders of this plastic ban saying, well, how could it hurt? I mean, you know, sure, we put in this ban. Maybe it isn't helping the oceans, but we are cutting down on plastic. Uh, but we could have a replacement that is suddenly worse for the environment. And there's plenty of precedent for this. Uh, remember the, all those anti-littering campaigns in the 1970s? There's a famous ad where a guy who's actually a Sicilian is pretending to be an American Indian, and there's a tear rolling down his cheek. Um, there has been research done to say that anti-littering campaigns actually led to the ramp-up of uh, consumer plastics. Before then, uh, so basically with anti-littering campaigns, it, this was actually funded by large packaging companies, and they thought, well, by putting the blame on consumers, we are free to create ever more packaging. So you've seen a ballooning of packaging brought about by anti-littering campaigns. So you think an anti-littering campaign is good? No, our garbage has like quintupled over the last 20 years because of it. Or plastic bag bans are another good example. There is, I found British data, which is uh, referenced in the piece, showing that if you're looking at just use of resources, one of the most environmentally friendly ways to handle your garbage uh, or, or, or to, do, to carry home your groceries is to have a single-use plastic bag and then to reuse it as a bin line. And that describes me. That describes mm-hmm. a lot of people. You have your plastic bag and then you reuse it. If you're talking about raw resources, that's way more efficient than the alternative that we've all adopted. We have like 50 million of those tote bags all stashed all over the house. So we're actually using more resources because we got onto this plastic bag trend uh, ban. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'm urging people to please look at the numbers. This is a really easy-to-solve problem with ocean plastic, and you're not going to solve it if you're doing something that does nothing and then feel insatiated. So the problem at the end of this People are going to be super inconvenienced and drinking out of sippy cups, and you can't get a fork anymore, and you got to carry around your own forks, and they'll say, well, it's all for the ocean. No, it's not for the ocean. It's a pain in the ass for no reason. Well, you can find your piece at nationalpost.com. We also uh, retweeted a link to it. Uh, folks can find that there. Uh, Tristan, thanks for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Tristan Hopper writes for the National Post. Uh, his piece from last year, Banning Straws, isn't going to save the ocean. But abandoned fishing gear and third world garbage are choking the ocean with plastic, not so much urban iced coffee drinks. Now, it is true that that we probably still use more plastic than we need to or throw out more plastic than we should. There's a particular challenge with straws, obviously, that even though certain plastic products can be recycled, straws really can't. So it is maybe in a lot of cases a needless waste of plastic. 
Yeah, I think as Tristan Hopper points out, there are certainly people with disabilities who, who really do require straws to be able to drink. I realize that, you know, milkshakes, slurpees, you kind of need a straw, I guess. Or if you're driving in your vehicle, a straw is handy. But if you're sitting down in a restaurant and you order a drink, why on earth do you need a straw? So I just, I don't like straws. I don't like using straws unless I have to. And it's not so much a plastic thing. It's just, why am I using this? You know, you wouldn't use one at home. Grab a glass from your cupboard, pour yourself a glass of milk or a glass of wine or a glass of beer or a cup of coffee. You're not going to use a straw. Why would you? Well, it's the Global Petroleum Show this week, and it comes at obviously a very interesting time for the industry. Kind of, kind of a crossroads of sorts here. Where are we going to be a, a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, ten years from now? And a lot of that, I think, is going to hinge on what happens in the coming months and the kinds of decisions that get made today, as in 2019. Certainly, uh, top of the list being the Trans Mountain Pipeline Project but also things like C69, C48. So I think there is maybe some optimism, certainly when you look at the potential for this industry uh, and the kind of innovation that we're capable of. We can be global leaders, uh, but are we going to continue to hamstring ourselves? And if we do, what, what are the consequences? So some pretty big questions. Uh, so there's a lot going on around the Global Petroleum Show this week. And I know tomorrow there's a big rally happening in support of the industry. Uh, you've been hearing about that, uh, Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe going to be there and your minister, Sonia Savage, and others. That's happening tomorrow. Also happening tomorrow is the premiere of a brand new documentary looking at the oil and gas sector. Where we're at, where we go from here. The documentary is called A Stranded Nation. The premiere is tomorrow, 4 p.m. at the new Central Library. Joining us to talk more about all of this is Heidi McKillop, director and producer of A Stranded Nation. Heidi, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate you having me on. Well, tell us a bit more about your own story and how this documentary came together in the first place. Well, basically what happened was um, I'm from New Brunswick originally, born and raised, and I moved out to Alberta six years ago. And uh, I didn't know anything about the oil and gas industry. I certainly didn't think that it was relevant um, in Canadian politics. I was very much sheltered from the whole idea of it. When I moved out here, I began working as a receptionist uh, for an oil and gas company and started to learn a lot more about the industry. I started getting um, mentors who were willing to teach me the ins and outs of it. And uh, yeah, and then basically during the recession, I lost my job. And I realized through all of this how, how interdependent this industry is across Canada. And I realized that for my own family and my own upbringing that there was that disconnection there. And there was um, this idea focused around it that we don't need it. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Right, absolutely. So, I mean, is, is this in part telling the story of what's happening here to, to people in the rest of the country who maybe don't understand it? Yes, exactly. So with each interviewee in the documentary, basically what my focus was, was to get people, you know, for instance, we have Frank McKenna on, and he's obviously a huge part of uh, New Brunswick politics, and mm-hmm. everyone respects him back east. So it was really getting um, those folks like Michelle Rampel to really voice their concerns and to just go on camera of what they're seeing in the industry, what the trends are, what 
um, Canadians need to know because it's very difficult to have a debate about a pipeline when some folks don't even know what LNG is, right? So it really comes down to these very basic concepts and really understanding transfer payments, um, et cetera, our healthcare system, how everything is interconnected in federation. And those are all really big concepts that I know can relate to every Canadian. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about a stranded nation, I mean, certainly we've heard the term stranded a lot, uh, the, the inability mm-hmm. to get our product to market and feeling as though we're kind of being cut off from, from the rest of the world. Is, is that what you were getting at? Yes, exactly. So, I, you know, our, our, our major issue, obviously, is um, the pipeline debate and uh, the, the lack of information associated with pipelines and what the purposes are how it benefits Canada as a whole. It's a, it's our energy program that needs to be focused on. And that's really um, what I wanted to get from the title is that we are a stranded nation and we really do need to be working together cross-provincially on this issue. What do you think has been, what's your sense anyway, in terms of your own looking at, at this, what you've heard from, from the people that you talked to for this documentary, of how it got to this point or what, what the main problem is? Um, I would say that, in my personal opinion, and I just I'm just speaking from my own experiences about moving out west, mm-hmm. is that there really hasn't been a lot of communication outside of Alberta. We certainly are seeing that now, and you can see that in the news. We have you know our new premier that is really standing up for uh, the pipeline issue and the misinformation being represented out there, and that's really the battle because. You know what, when you do present this information to other Canadians and other provinces, they are really shocked by the by the um, the misinformation they've been told. So whether that's uh, an environmental issue or that they think that Canada is dirty oil, which it, which it isn't. And that's really what the foundation, the heart of the film is about, is that, again, it comes down to federation. We are, we are Canadians first and our province is second. And I really am worried about where this is headed in terms of that um, people not working together and not being in one conversation as a whole. What's interesting, because in New Brunswick, I, I get the sense maybe that people in New Brunswick understand this perhaps a little better than, than other Canadians. Certainly, New Brunswick has a, a strong refining industry. I know there was a lot of support mm-hmm. in New Brunswick for the idea of building the Energy East pipeline uh, to New mm-hmm. Brunswick. Is, is it your sense then that maybe folks out there are a little more attuned to this? I think it's starting to change, certainly. I definitely think that there are there's still work to be done, obviously. Um, but it's kind of like in Quebec as well. I think the misrepresentation is that Quebecers are against it. And there's actually quite a few Quebecers that are for it. And actually, when I was filming in Quebec City, even just talking to locals and actually getting a sense of where their mindsets are at, um, they're, they're definitely coming around to the idea that, yes, maybe importing some or oil and gas from other countries is is not beneficial for Canada, and it's certainly not environmentally friendly. So I think that there is um, a shifting, a mentality shifting that is happening, and I certainly hope with the documentary this is uh, really going to solidify that. Yeah, let's hope so. All right, so it's um, it's premiered tomorrow in Calgary, 4 o'clock at the uh, new Central Library? Yes, correct. And after tomorrow, how are people going to have an opportunity to see it? What's the plan going forward? Uh, so we're basically going to be doing a digital release online. So essentially what's going to happen is we're going to be posting the trailer on <laughs> different social media uh, websites and uh, links. And then the documentary is going to be directly linked to the trailer so you can watch it online. All right. Well, I think this is a very important contribution to the conversation. The documentary is called A Stranded Nation. Heidi, thank you so much for joining us here today. Appreciate this.
Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. All right. Likewise. There you go. Heidi McKillop, uh, director, producer of this documentary, A Stranded Nation. So the premiere is tomorrow. Uh, four o'clock at the New Central Library. You can see it there. And as she mentions, uh, following that, there are plans to, to make it uh, digitally available. So keep an eye out for that again. It is called A Stranded Nation. There's been a lot of talk about the idea of pharmacare. If we're going to have universal health care, is, is pharmacare, universal pharmacare, a logical extension of that? Right. And part of the argument is that, you know, as much as we talk a good game in Canada about people not having to go broke because of their medical conditions, for a lot of people, drug cost can be a significant financial burden. And how can we really separate prescription drugs from from health care? Obviously, they, they go hand in hand. Now, for a lot of people, though, it, it isn't an issue because they, they have coverage. So do we need a plan that would at least fill gaps? Do we need a complete and total overhaul of this where all of that that private coverage would go away in favor of a a national universal plan? I mean, depending how we go about it, there are going to be some costs associated. Well, a new report from the C.D. Howe Institute finds that universal pharmacare coverage could be within reach. So what would it look like? You know, what's it going to cost? Joining us uh, to talk more about it is uh, Rosalie Wynock, who is a policy analyst uh, at the C.D. Howe Institute, cdhowe.org, and the author of this report. Rosalie, great to have you with us. You're welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Rob. Happy to be here. Well, let's talk about what it is we mean when we talk about universal pharmacare. I suppose there, there are different ways of going about it, but what you take it to me. Well, to me, universal pharmacare means that regardless of who's Um, paying for the drugs that are covered, uh, that people have access to the drugs that they need without facing, uh, you know, a lot of hardship due to that cost. Mm -hmm. So that could mean a, you know, one one plan federally run, everybody gets the same coverage and the same access. Or it could mean something like what is actually the case in Quebec, where there is universal coverage for pharmacare, but some people are covered by a government plan and others are covered through private insurance with their employer. So it could mean it could mean a lot of things, but really I think that the at the end of the day it means making sure that every Canadian has some sort of prescription drug coverage that protects them and gets them the medications that they need. Well, there already is coverage that's available to, to low-income households, to seniors, etc. And obviously there are a lot of Canadians who are covered by private plans. So what, what kind of a gap exists? Well, the, the gap is, depending on the sources you look at it, and what, you're, what exactly you're talking about, it's a minority of Canadians. We'll say about uh, 10% of households face costs that are you know, over a threshold of what we would consider to be a pretty catastrophic cost, which is, you know, above a threshold of how much income you earn. So though though there are public programs for low-income residents and seniors, it may be that the drugs that individuals need aren't included on that plan or that there are, there's uh, people that are, you know, past the line where they actually qualify for coverage via the some public plan but are employed in a job that doesn't offer the sort of comprehensive 
coverage you would expect from an employer. Okay. So there, there is also gaps um, in coverage for those that may, may actually have some form of coverage, but they aren't covered enough or they're not covered for the right things. Or, and there's this section of the population that might be, say, the vulnerable working poor. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in that sense, yeah, I mean, the gap is is bigger than just those who have zero coverage. It it would include people who have some coverage, but it may be limited depending on on what it is they find themselves dealing with. As well, coverage varies across the country. So even in the provinces that have plans, a person making the same amount of money with the same medical needs may actually face higher, much higher out-of-pocket costs in one province compared to another. And so that's also something that's really motivating the call for some sort of universal coverage is this idea of ending the postal code lottery where, you know, if you're a resident in Ontario, you may have access to treatments that you wouldn't be able to access if you were in Saskatchewan or Manitoba. Right. Well, I mean, ultimately, provinces are going to have a say in in regulating this. Is it reasonable that we would have uh, a similar plan or an exact same plan that exists in every province? And that is quite the challenge. At the moment, you're right, we do have basically 13 different systems uh, across the country as well. Each province operates different plans within each province. You know, there may be a different plan that covers seniors, Mm-hmm. Um, than the one that covers low-income people. And so all of those formularies or the list of drugs that are covered and at what the restrictions are vary a lot within each province and also between provinces. So it is a huge barrier to overcome. And really, I think that since those provinces have already made choices related to what is most necessary for their populations, it's unlikely that we'll see a you know, large federal plan where everyone gets the same thing simply because the provinces should maintain their say in this whole process. And because we're all starting from different baselines, you know, a different amount of progress would be need to be made by provincial governments. And so I think that this is going to be uh, not a short process to getting everyone some form of coverage. It's going to take a certain amount of negotiations between different levels of government, and all of that's going to take time. So in the meantime, I think that there, there is the opportunity for the federal government to at least set the baseline and, you know, maybe attach that to some funding to get provinces motivated to actually begin this process of developing a formulary that would be acceptable across the country. But I think that that process would take years, and there's, we could fill the gaps uh, much more quickly with, say, a mixed public-private approach like what they've done in Quebec, which has successfully had universal pharmacare coverage for more than 20 years. And one of the other things about Quebec is that it's managed to do that without actually increasing provincial spending on prescription drugs much more than... You know, it's comparable to other areas in the country. So it definitely is possible for us to achieve universal coverage. Whether or not that means that every province is going to get the same thing, I, I don't think that that will happen, but it is something that we should work towards in the future. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and when you look at a couple of different options, the Quebec kind of option, it, it would certainly seem to cost less. Yes, I uh, in in my research I do cost out these options. So um, one option is that I 
uh, basically estimate how much it would cost for existing provincial plans that cover low-income households and seniors if you were just to expand that and give that first dollar provincial coverage to everyone that's uninsured. And that would cost about $5.4 billion across the country, whereas uh, the Quebec model, which has a funding mechanism, and there's a whole lot of other details that I won't get into, but the implementation cost of that appears to be about $2.2 billion. So it's, it, the estimate shows that it could be significantly cheaper than just simply expanding the existing provincial programs. They're really interesting. More at cdhow.org. Rosalie, appreciate making some time for us here today. Thanks for this. I'm happy to, I'm always happy to talk about Pharmacare. All right, there you go. Rosalie Wynock is a policy analyst at the C.D. Howe Institute, author of this report, looking at uh, various options that might exist if we want to go down this path, but they do come with, with price tags, obviously. Let's talk about dogs and how great dogs are and how great our relationship with dogs is and, and can be. And in terms of having, you know, some kind of an emotional connection to our, our pets, certainly uh, we feed off their emotions, right? When you can tell that your dog's happy, it, it helps brighten your mood. And if it seems like your dog is feeling down or not well, you know, I mean, it, it brings down your mood. So we do feed off of how they're doing, but does it go the other way? And some interesting new research suggests that it does. That, that canines essentially absorb our emotions. Uh, so this is some researchers out of Sweden who found that, uh, quote, dogs are quite good at understanding humans. They're definitely better at understanding us than we are at understanding them. But for example, though, this could mean that owners, dog owners who experience long-term stress and anxiety could be passing it on to their pets. The dogs can not only sense that, but, but take that on themselves. So certainly, I, I think, you know, it raises some questions because I, I think there are people who maybe see having a pet as a way to help ease stress and anxiety. Should that give people any, any pause, any second thoughts about that? Well, I wanted to, to explore this with uh, certainly one of this country's uh, leading dog behavior experts. We got with us Dr. Stanley Corrin, uh, Professor Emeritus of the Department of Psychology at UBC. Dr. Corrin, so great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Uh, pleased to be here. Uh, it's certainly, this, this research out of Sweden does seem to, to add to uh, an existing body of evidence in, in this field. What does it tell us about how dogs can, can sense and read our emotions? Well, we have always knew that dogs could um, uh, sense our emotions and did tend to react to it. So, for example, if you act upset in a particular situation, then the dog um, tends to act upset also. Uh, the neat thing about this particular study is that it looks at things over the long term. Um, you see, dogs respond to stress uh, the same way that we do, and that is um, they dump a whole lot of stress hormones into our blood. Um, and um, uh, these uh, stress hormones... Um, uh, the particular one which which is important here is cortisol um, indicates um, just how stressed an individual is now we can determine and in fact researchers who are interested in the emotions of dogs have been using this now for a number of years we can determine the immediate stress level of a dog by taking a blood sample 
or uh, more recently by simply taking a swab with a little bit of saliva from the dog mm -hmm. and determining the amount of cortisol. That tells us, you know, gives us an instantaneous measure of, of uh, how uh, stressed the dog is. But if we wanted to measure long-term stress levels, we'd have to, you know, take those swabs, you know, several times a week over a longer period of time. And uh, the, the radioimmune assay that you use uh, to, to measure this is, is complex and expensive and that sort of thing. So the most recent breakthrough came when researchers found that, in fact, little bits of the, of the cortisol uh, get stored in the dog's fur or in human hair. And so that means that any strand of hair is sort of a stress diary and tells us over the long term how, how stressed the individual has been. It also is a really neat trick because you can now measure the ongoing sort of long-term stress level of both the dog and the person using exactly the same measure. So what these researchers did is they decided to see whether there was a relationship between uh, the stress levels in the dogs and the uh, stress levels of their owners. And the big major finding which they found is that in fact the, the stress levels of the dogs uh, are synchronized with the stress levels of the people. In other words, there's a strong association. Of course, that then leaves, you know, the $64,000 question um, as to whether it is the stress in the dog which affects the owners or something about the owners which is affecting the dogs. So what they did then was they, is they did, uh, they gave the dog owners a um, series of personality measures. And they found that three out of the five uh, most common uh, personality measures had an effect. Uh, and, oh, by the way, they also gave a personality test to the dogs, okay? There's mm -hmm. a, a thing which you can do uh, by having the owner assess the dog's behaviors. It turns out that the personality of the dog doesn't matter at all. Uh, but the personality owner has a big effect. And um, in, as I said, it was in three dimensions, and they were uh, what are called openness, conscientiousness, and neuroticism. Now, for both openness and conscientiousness, increased levels in the human resulted in increased levels in the dog. Openness, you know, you can think of a person who's high on that measure as being very adventuresome, likes to try new things, get bored doing the same thing over and over, and that kind of a thing. Um, well, that's exactly what dogs hate. Okay, dogs like yeah. routine. You know, they like to be able to predict exactly when dinner's coming, and they are most comfortable in their own place. So we can see where that brings some stress into the dogs. Conscientiousness has to do with being organized, um, you know, finishing projects, not, you know, being very neat, not messy at all. Um, pay attention to details. Well, tell me what dogs are like. I mean, they're messy. They don't pay attention <laughs> to details. They sometimes don't finish what they started. They're, you know, they procrastinate and that sort of thing. So that high level of, uh, you know, for a human is going to reflect on the dog. And, but the one which really surprised me is it turns out that high levels of neuroticism uh, 
in the human being um, lead to lower levels of stress in the dog. Now that, you know, when, when I first read that, it sort of blew me away. But then the authors have a way of, of, of explaining this. They say, look, there's some indication that people who are, you know, high on neuroticism form a really strong attachment bond to their dog. So because of that, they use their dog as a social support. Um, now, while they're using the dog as a social support, they're interacting with it, and the dog benefits from those interactions, which means that the person is actually supporting the dog as well. And so that lowers the stress level in both humans and canines. So that was sort of a, a, a surprising effect. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So, uh, go but, ahead. Okay, uh, uh, there was one other neat thing which they found, and that is that people who spend a lot of time either competing with their dogs or training with their dogs, in, in, you know, in dog shows or competitions or just simple training, um, well, the stress levels are more similar um, uh, between the dogs and the person. So, in other words, the the stronger the bond, the more likely it is that 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 our stress levels will mirror each other. Right, which makes sense. I, I guess it does raise the question, as I alluded to, that I mean, you know, for people who who see having a pet as maybe a way to to help alleviate stress and anxiety, uh, is is there a concern that instead it might get get passed on to the dog? Well. <laughs> You know, if you would have asked me uh, a month ago before I read the scientific report, I would say that's a possibility. But, but uh, based on this, no, the individuals who who tend to be the most neurotic, if you will, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, having the dog there, well, they lean on the dog for support, and the dog likes that. There's lots of evidence which say that therapy dogs love you know, this kind of interaction. So actually, you're lowering the stress of both the person and the dog through that interaction, which is sort of nice. Right, so quite the opposite, in fact, that that's, that, that, is, that is still a, a positive arrangement. Then. Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, as I said a month ago, you would have asked me, mm-hmm. I would have come to a different conclusion. Scientific data has has that habit of, you know, taking your nice <laughs> sure, conclusions yeah. and shredding them. <laughs> <you know? laughs> that's a good thing, right? Um, so, but I mean, yeah, it really does speak to to how how significant that that bond is, right, between dogs and and their owners. I think it's just in terms of that bigger picture about our relationship with these remarkable animals. I mean, it just it further strengthens that. Yeah, and uh, you know, as a psychologist, um, you know, I I find this quite interesting because you know, it, in some respects, it's it's easier for me to you know at first glance. Uh, to tell uh, whether a dog is stressed or whether its owner is stressed. Yeah. And, uh, and because, you know, dogs show this in their body posture and a whole bunch of other things. So now I know that if I see a stressed dog, I should, you know, wonder about whether or not their owner's going through a bad uh, uh, stretch of road at the yeah. same time. Yeah, that's an important point, too. Well, we'll leave it there. Dr. Corn. really appreciate the insight. More at stanleycorn.online. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate that. Glad to be here. Take All right, care. take care. Uh, that is Dr. Stanley Corrin, a dog behavior expert, a professor emeritus at UBC, stanleycorn.online. 
Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.